0: Hopefully, everybody survived Sandy and made it back. We've got most of the class back, at least. So nothing too bad. At least we weren't further off on the coast, where they were really getting, what did they show one of the tunnels in New York, where the water was up to the top of the tunnels. So it's like, ugh. Wouldn't have wanted to be stuck, stuck there. So had yeah, a little bit, but not, not, too, not too horrible, at least. Down where I was in New York, it wasn't really. Really bad, although they closed school for two and a half days, so because actually had a, they had a half they had a two-hour delay today. So one thing I can guess is that some of the back roads were still pretty flooded, and buses would have trouble getting through. So all right, we have Quiz five do, is, is yours. I went ahead and extended that. So it closed on Tuesday morning, and I didn't even pay attention until I got in today, and I reopened it through tomorrow. So if you haven't taken it with all of the stuff going on, it's still available there. I think about seven people had taken it, so I went ahead and reopened it. So if you get through it today, it's good through six o'clock tomorrow morning. You can still take that. You can still take quiz five. Exam three was on Monday, so hopefully everybody did really well on it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> better than we thought. We didn't have to take it, right? Um, I have it. I'm not. I, t- I told if you got my email, I did send everybody a couple uh, hawkmail emails. So to let you know that it wouldn't be today because I didn't know how things were going to recover and how many people could make it in or not. My other class did pretty good. I was only missing one person. So here we're missing a couple more. But what I'm going to do with the exam is not give it to you today, but give it to you today. So I'm going to give it to you today, but it's not due till Monday. In other words, it's going to become a take home exam. Yay, right? So hopefully it should be much better than the last one. That should help doesn't always make the only good thing with this one is that I didn't plan it as a take home exam so I didn't you know adjust questions where you know I throw off certain questions if I were making a specifically making a take home exam I wouldn't give that wouldn't give certain questions cuz you could look them up so easily but I didn't make that adjustment here you just got the exam that I had printed out on Friday ready to go for Monday when we got flooded out and it's going to be due on on Monday so I'm going to ha- I'll hand it out at the end of class today You can take it. This gives me time to give it to anybody who missed class today. They can still get it on Friday and have time to do it. I will also put it up digitally on D2L so you can take it on there if you want to take it online or if you want to, if you forget and you forget to turn it in Monday for whatever reason, you can go transfer your answers and submit them online because I have to hold to the deadline. So if you forget to bring it in on Monday, you've got to submit it on D2L so that I get it by the end of the day so I can grade them and look at them and then give you a sign, give you a feedback back hopefully on Wednesday. So if you turn it in on Wednesday it's going to be late. So I will have to penalize it if you turn it in after that. So I'll give you that. That way you'll have multiple options. You can bring it, just, bring it back into class on Monday or you can do it there and type it into D2L. The only warning that I gave to my other class and that I want to make sure I give to you on it, first of all I'm not going to tell you don't use your books on it because it's silly too because some of you will. If I tell you don't do that, some of you will really do it and will not use the book. And if I say you only get so much time, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to give you that because I know some would. And other people would just say, well, he's never going to know. I'm going to use my books. I'm going to use this. So make it fair for everybody. You can use books. You can use other notes, resources, whatever, whatever you want, whatever you need to on it. That's fine. Um, there's no specific time limit on it. I d- don't spend you know, 10 hours trying to get it perfect though. I mean, it's, it's up to you. But, you know, there comes a point of diminishing returns where maybe I'll get one more point if I spend three more hours on it. Is it worth it with your other class? It's up to you. If you want to spend the next, from now until, until Monday night working on it, you're welcome to. But don't, don't, don't drive yourself that, cra- that crazy over it. The other warning is um, I don't usually have to search for plagiarism on exams if unless I do them outside of class. So since I'm sending it outside, please don't just, you know, find the an, find an answer in your textbook that you're copying, you know, word for word or even close to word for word. Use your textbook as a resource, use other internet sources as a resource, but don't just copy things straight in because if it's copied straight from a website, straight from anything else, then I will look for those and I will have to not give you any credit. I mean, that's Plagiarism that can I, usually I zero them on the questions to start off with, but it becomes an issue. You can actually I can actually zero the exam. I can fail you can, you can fail the course. I mean all based on that. So use the resources, but just don't. Oh, book says here, copy, 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 change two words so it doesn't look the same. Well, it looks close enough, and I've re- gone through the book enough times that I usually can recognize. I won't say nobody ever gets away with it. I, yeah, I'm not, not perfect. I can't catch everything, but I have caught a number of them in my online courses. So. Just give you that warning. Use the resources, but put your answer together and write, and write it up. Write it up in your own words. So, questions on that? So we'll do that that way, because I don't know at this point whether we'll make up the day or not. They'll probably tell me at some point. Sometimes they ask us and say, do we need the extra day? I'm sort of going on that we're not going to make up the day, so this way I don't, we don't lose any class time either. So we'll just have that. It'll be due on Monday, and then I'll hopefully have them back to you that, that week. So, quiz five take through take any time through the end of the day six o'clock tomorrow morning. Um, exam three due Monday. Third set of solar observations. I know everybody's done so many of them this past week, right? <laughs> I know I won't be seeing any for the very end of October, so because it's just been I haven't I haven't seen. Actually, I did. I saw the moon this morning through the through the clouds. I could actually see the moon hazily through the clouds. So, but we're not supposed to get any sun until this weekend. So. From what I looked at at the weather, it's going to be weekend time before we get any. So I'll leave that. That's the seventh. If you get any other observations, if you had any before this that you took before, you can turn those in. If you get one or two, this one this weekend or something, you can turn that in. That'll be the last step that I'm collecting before we actually go through the project. And then homework six, which is chapters 12 and 13, which is what we're working on right now. I'll hand those out. And that will be due uh, one two three week from week from Friday, so when I was all headed all ready to give you out on Monday and then something happened. You go. We do. Two and three. All right. So otherwise, as I, other than adjusting your quiz, giving you the extra time on the quiz, and adjusting the exam, I really haven't changed anything for the for the class. I'm just sort of taking that day out and giving you the take-home exam instead of the in-class exam we would have done on Monday. So it keeps us right on schedule where we, where we were. So, Questions, questions? All Picture of the day for today. I'm going to go ahead and turn this one off. because It's a little bit better to see. Halloween picture. So actually a ghostly nebula. So you can see the bright portion of the nebula and the blue right up at the top. And the darker portion. Sort of wisping down sort of a ghostly apparition for, for Halloween here. And this is some of the stuff we were just talking about a couple chapters ago. We were looking at a star that has recently formed here in the upper, a nice bright blue star. And you see it illuminating the dust in a reflection nebula. So the light, the intense light from that star is being reflected off the dust to us from that part of the from that dust around the star. Below it, we see a dark nebula. So this is sort of a star that's formed right at the edge of this nebula. And there's darker areas behind it. You don't see a lot of stars here. You don't see too many stars as you go down through this. The stars that you do see are reddened, meaning that we're looking through the dust. So when you look at this section here, you see these stars. They all look pretty, they all look a little bit red. These all look a little red to them, a little bit of a reddish tinge here, as compared to the stars over here where you're seeing blue and white and all different combinations of the colors of the stars. So we're looking through a darker dust cloud here. There are some thicker areas where you can't see anything through them, where you cannot see through them at all. Perhaps if we could come back in 100,000 years or a million years, this star might still be there and wouldn't be as much dust around it but there might be some other stars that are currently forming right now that will actually start to pop out and illuminate this and we'll actually start to see us the beginnings of a small cluster as stars form throughout this nebula and it'll probably work its way down either it will end up dispersing parts of the nebula or some of the darker areas will then start to form into stars as we go through go well, we'll go through time so a nice, nice picture there, a nice picture there for Halloween. A little bit of a ghostly, kind of a ghostly apparition. Welcome. Give you some light back. Questions? Questions? 16. We're still missing about four people. Okay. Not too, not too bad considering the weather. So. Otherwise, we're going to go back. We were talking about the Ends of Lives of the Stars, Chapter 13. So we had been looking at pulsars last time. And we're going to finish that up and work our way into black holes this time. And this is the last, well, last slide I've given you. was When you look at the Crab Nebula, the Crab Nebula was a supernova remnant. So an exploded, an old uh, high mass star that had exploded. And by about almost 1,000 years ago now is seen from the Earth. And its pulsar, its neutron star, the remnant left at the center, actually pulses bright enough. And we saw last time on Friday that you could see it pulsing in visible light. You could get it turned on. You could have it turned off. So you could see it either way as that beam spun across and came through our line of sight. Another pulsar actually behind it just in the same general location in space as the Jaminga pulsar, does the same thing. You can see how it gets brighter. That upper image is gamma rays. So when you're looking in gamma rays, you can see that it gets brighter and it gets fainter in gamma rays as that beam sweeps across our line of sight. So just like a lighthouse sweeping by, when it comes and points at you, you get that burst and yeah, you can sort of see the light all the time, but when that pulse comes right to you, you get the incredible brightness of the light at the time and then it fades away. Very quickly, you see that the, those are going with a very short period, about a quarter of a second. So this thing is spinning around four times a second. So this is something the mass of the sun, or a little more, that's whipping around four times every single second. So they, they, they're pulsars. The neutron stars rotate extremely rapidly. And will, they will slow down over time. And that's sort of part of how they fade, how they fade off, as they start to spin a little bit slower. Now, can we find a neutron star by itself? Well, here's one. Probably relatively close to us because it's moving quickly. So we can actually see it moving a little bit here on the sky as seen by Hubble in 1996. In 1999, a little bit later in 1999, we can certainly see that it's moving through space. Its temperature is hotter than anything else we've talked about in terms of the surface temperatures of anything, right? 700,000 degrees. Not as hot as the center of the Sun, but 700,000 degrees is much hotter than even the hottest stars we were talking about. You know, we're 10, 20, 30,000 degrees. Like, that's more than 10, 10, times, 10 times that. And still so 20, more than 20 times hotter than some of the hottest stars. So, this is just that very dense core. If it was 700,000 degrees and it were anything big, we'd be able to see it. It would be glowing so, it would be so tremendously bright that it would wash out everything else. The only reason we don't see it and why it takes Hubble and a very detailed picture looking very deep, you can see all sort of the noise and very faint stars here, but barely able to see it because it's so tiny. You're seeing something that's only 10 kilometers across. If it weren't so hot and as this cools off, You know, come back in thousands of years, tens of thousands, a hundred thousand years, you're not going to be able to see it. It's going to cool off enough and it's still so tiny we're not going to be able to see it anymore. But it's relatively young, maybe a million years old, so it's lost some of its material, it's slowed down. Why don't we see it as a pulsar? It might have slowed down enough or it might just be beaming someplace else. If it was beaming so that beam doesn't point towards us, we never see it as a pulsar. So if that beam is going, you know, diagonally it's going up above and below you know, and you're looking from down here and the beam is spinning around like this, we're never ever going to see it as a pulsar. And that's probably what's happening in this case because we don't see it pulsing. But we can see that it's moving. So we can actually observe one, at least in one case, an, an isolated neutron star. A neutron star all by itself, not necessarily associated with any remnant yet. The remnant may have had time to fade off by this point and expanded out into space. This is moving so fast, maybe something else happened to fling this uh, out into space. Maybe some other star, you know, blew up that it was moving and it just got flung out into space. So a number of different things that could have happened that's really all kind of speculation right now. Now, if we look near the center of our galaxy, one thing we do see is what we call bursts of X-rays. So we see x-ray bursters. We're actually going to talk about gamma ray bursters in a little bit. If we look near the center, it's a burst in x-ray. So it's an object that if we're looking towards the center of our galaxy, we look at the intensity of the x-rays, we see an object here that's emitting some x-rays. During the burst, it becomes not overwhelmingly bright, but sure a heck of a lot brighter than it was. Many, many times brighter than it was in x-rays all of a sudden. So it's emitting a lot more x-rays. Now, why might something like this occur? Well, giving you a hint with the title, it's a neutron star binary. And if we go back, you we talked about white dwarfs in binary systems and NOVI. Right? You had material spiraling off another, another star collected on the white dwarf. It might burst, give a burst of energy off. It might start, start nuclear ignition, nuclear reactions on the surface of that white dwarf star and cause ANOVA, cause it to brighten in the visible part of the spectrum. What might happen if you did the same thing? Couldn't the same thing happen with a neutron star? If you have a neutron star that happens to be close, have a companion close to it, that maybe comes into the red giant phase, transfers material to the surface of that neutron star, then would it ignite? And what it might be doing, instead of doing it in the visible part of the spectrum, recall that we have much more energy involved here. You've got a um, neutron star has much higher gravity, much more compact. So instead of seeing the burst in the visible part of the spectrum, we see the burst in the x-ray portion of the spectrum. And that's what's seen up here is sort of, it's the Einstein Observatory, which is an x-ray telescope that that surveyed the center of the galaxy. And there's the location, you know, where is the location and what's going on around it. So it's a visible light picture, but you can locate this as compared to what's going on deep within this cluster of stars near the center of our galaxy. Now, again, I sort of explained this to you once, let's go through it again. What we think happens is it's the similar process to what goes on with ANOVA. ANOVA was a white dwarf star that collected too much material on its surface, built up too much material. And started burning. Started burning, and we saw it brighten. We saw that star brighten by hundreds of thousands of times. So it got from hardly being visible to being, you know, one of the bright stars and one of the brighter stars in the sky. So many, many times brighter than it was. The same process could happen with a neutron star. If you have a neutron star in a binary system, now, how do you have to have the star survive the supernova explosion, which isn't necessarily undoable? You got to think about this: the star to become a neutron star, something had to explode. So you had to have this intense explosion that had that had that you know, that didn't happen to destroy the other star. There are certain ways that there are ways that can happen, and we certainly see this kind of thing happening, which is our only good explanation for it. Although we do also see a neutron star. In fact, one of the first planets discovered outside. Of our solar system was orbiting a neutron star. How would you do? That? I mean, it's, an interesting, it's led to a whole new discussion of how planets form and how this might have occurred, because wouldn't you expect if our sun were to go supernova right now? Yeah, it can't. But if the sun were to go supernova and tear, us, tear itself apart, don't you think all the planets would be wiped out in the process? So how did something form around a neutron star? But obviously, planets can be left, probably nothing like the Earth. But it. It's possible that they can still be there, so it's possible that you could probably have a companion star survive. The difference is that you've got a much stronger gravitational field. Same mass, the mass of a neutron star isn't that much more than the mass of a white dwarf. Maybe the same mass, maybe twice as massive. But the gravitational field is so much stronger because you've taken something the size of the Earth and crushed it down to about 10 kilometers across. About six miles across, the size of a city. So, you have all that mass, the entire, all the mass is there in the sun compressed down that much smaller, makes the gravitational field that much more intense. You know, a neutron star would have a solid surface, but no, you couldn't walk on it. Now, same with the white dwarf. The gravity is too intense that if you could go and land on it, you'd be smashed flat. The gravitational field is that, is that, is that would be that intense. Plus, the t- ignoring the fact that the temperatures where you're talking 700,000 degrees, and it's going to be a little a little warm for your spacecraft to, to land there. So you couldn't really land on it or anything, but it would have a solid, it, has a, it is a solid surface as compared. Which is good because that's why they can spin so, so fast. <coughs> so very similar process to ANOVA. That's what we think is going on with these X-ray bursters. So here's an example of sketch. Sort of showing the material going in. And one of the things that that does because I've talked to you about these pulsars, many of them spin every second, maybe every two seconds, maybe three or four times a second. There are a certain new clas- a class of pulsars that was discovered about about 30 years ago now, which we call the millisecond pulsars. So things typically ones will spin, you know, three to 30 times a second. There are some that actually spin, you know, hundreds of times a second. It's getting to the very edge of stability for a star, even a neutron star, to be able to hold itself together. If you spin things faster and faster, they eventually will tear themselves apart. Right? If you could spin the Earth fast enough, if you could spin the Earth, if you spun the Earth three times a second, boy, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset, you know, you'd never be able to get a solar measurement, because by the time you got their thing out there, <laughs> sun would be rising and setting too fast. But it would also, you know, to Another point is that, of course, it would sh- the Earth would have ripped itself apart. You know, the Earth's internal structure holding it together isn't enough to hold it up against the forces that would try to tear it apart. A neutron star, because it's so dense, can spin a lot faster and can spin three times, thirty times, even hundreds of times a second. So how do we get some of these spinning up? We think that these occur, not, when the, not very young ones that have just formed, but but older ones that have actually been sped up. And if you watch what it's showing here, some of that times that material is infalling, is collecting material. So when material comes into something with a strong gravitational field like this, it doesn't just plop onto it the way you tend to think of, you know, a meteor striking into the earth. What it ends up doing is it's in an orbit and it just ends up being in a decaying orbit and goes in slower and slower and slower. A black hole does the same thing, which we'll talk about in a little bit. It doesn't just, everything just doesn't go, you know, zooming straight into it. It sort of spirals in like this. Now, if you're spiraling in this direction, as material hits this neutron star, if that neutron star happens to be spinning in this direction, so imagine it's spinning this way, what are you doing? Giving it a kick? you know, Pushing a kid on a swing and you push them at the right time, they go faster and faster. If you keep giving this thing a kick in the right direction as this material spirals in, You're going to speed it up. You're going to give it a little push here, a little push here. Over time, it's going to spin a lot faster than it was. It might have been spinning three times a second, then 10 times, then 30 times, and up to 100 times a second. So it can actually be spinning very, very quickly, just giving that extra little push as material falls in, as the material spirals into it. So that'll actually speed them up. So we think that's how these millisecond pulsars actually occur. They're not the youngest of the pulsars necessarily. They can be relatively old ones. They just happen to be collecting matter in just that right way that they're getting that extra little push. Every single time it gathers a little bit more material. So when we look at them here, we look at here as a globular cluster. We saw one of those a couple weeks ago when you had to plot all those stars out for the HR diagrams, right? So we saw that. We look deep down inside it. This is invisible light. That's what we see. Let's look at the core of it now. Not invisible light, but in X-rays. We see all of these different X-ray sources. Probably many of those are actually millisecond pulsars. There's a whole bunch of them. It must be a very common thing that happens in the universe, as we see just in one globular cluster, a whole bunch of these. And again, it's just a neutron star that's spinning faster and faster and faster as it gets that little push from material falling in from a companion star, from a red giant star perhaps that's orbiting with it that adds material to that neutron star. So this one, this specific one, has over 100 x-ray sources. It's a lot of x-rays. I mean, x-rays take quite a bit of energy produce, So to see 100 of them in one globular cluster, and maybe 50 some of them are millisecond pulsars or pulsars that are spinning very, very rapidly. So I've gotten spun up to this, to this point. Alrighty, so. Now, gamma ray bursts. So we can have X-ray bursts. We had bursts with the nova bursting. We had the um, X-ray, we had the X-ray bursters. And now we have the gamma ray bursters. Now, First spotted. interesting how they were first spotted was actually satellites looking not for anything, not astronomical satellites, but actually satellites looking for violations of nuclear test bans. So looking for nuclear explosions on the surface of the earth. Nuclear explosion is going to emit a lot of gamma rays. That's what's going on in a nuclear explosion, so it would be emitting a lot of gamma rays. So that's what they were looking for, but they were detecting all these bursts not coming from earth, but coming from further out into space. Now, when you look at things as to, how they're, as to how they're distributed in space, that's what this graph is showing down here. 2,700 of these that have been detected. They're observed all over no matter where you look in space. Anything that happens in our galaxy, if you recall our galaxy is a flat, very flattened disk galaxy. So that means most of the material in our galaxy is right down here. If they were coming from our galaxy we'd see very few up north, very few south, and most of them right along the equator here. But that's not what we see. So looking at this, an astronomer would say these things are coming from outside of our galaxy. So they could be some in our galaxy, but they're not just confined to our galaxy. They have to originate further out in space. So we're seeing these things not from Distances, you know, within our solar system of a few astronomical units, not from the nearby stars of a few light years, not from our galaxy of 100,000 light years, but we're actually seeing these bursts from incredible distances away. We're seeing them from, you know, as well out into the universe. So they have to be incredibly bright, something incredibly intense going on for us to be able to see them over that distance. you know. You don't see individual stars halfway across the universe, but you can see one of these. There's a lot of energy, so something even more energetic than the X-ray bursters that we saw within our galaxy. Something more energetic, obviously, than a nova that we see within our galaxy. Something much more energetic going on here. So here's some examples of what they look like. They're different. They're not all the same. If you looked at the supernovae, they looked pretty much the same. These don't get as many times as bright. Gamma rays, you know, there's some background level that we detect. And then spikes up here, 40,000, ta- 40, so It's about four times brighter. Here, again, three or four times brighter, but this one doesn't peak. And that one goes extremely quick. That's time in seconds that means it was done and over in a tenth of a second, less than a tenth of a second. Boom. Big burst of gamma rays and done. This one took a little bit longer. This one burst for a little while, took it maybe 20 or 30 seconds. This one again, you're talking just a couple seconds. So they're very very fast bursts of energy of intense gamma rays that are observed from almost anywhere you can imagine in space. So, not near as bright as, you know, a supernova, which would get millions or billions of times brighter. Than the original star, but still significantly brighter. You're going from five thousand counts, just how many gamma rays you're detecting every second, to forty thousand for a very short period of time. So eight, almost eight times the amount you were detecting before. The very first one, when we can measure, try to measure some distances to figure out how distances these, how far away these are, two billion parsecs. Put it in parsecs, why don't we put it in light years, because I've been giving you most stuff in light years. So that would be about a little over 6 billion light years. Size of the universe is about 13 to 14 billion light years. So you're looking about halfway across the universe. Incredibly far away, yet we're still able to see it. It would be difficult to see a supernova explosion at that. In fact, I'm not sure if we can see a super. I don't think we get a supernova explosion that far away. Maybe about half that distance, but not quite 2 billion parsecs. 6 billion light years. So you wouldn't be able to see a supernova explosion, but we're actually able to detect this relatively easily. So we can determine the distances. They're very far away. So what could be going on? What could actually be causing this type of explosion to form? Well, you know what we're talking about right now, so you've got a pretty good guess to start off with, right? It's going to have something to do with neutron stars that we're talking about. So we had material catching up to a neutron star and causing it to, you know, igniting on its surface. We had an x-ray burster. Well, if you take it to one more step, perhaps, we can get an idea of what might be going on. You know, what happens if you got too much material? A white dwarf had a stability limit? Does a neutron star have a stability limit? You know, does something happen with a neutron star if you get it too massive? We know we still gotta talk about black holes in this chapter. So, obviously, there's some stars that can't form a neutron star. There has to be something else that could form beyond that. So here's the two examples that we think might be occurring here. One is two neutron stars orbiting around each other. So neutron stars in a binary system getting closer together, closer together. Eventually, as they collide and start to merge, they start to form. They get really high, t- really heats, heats it up. As everything is colliding there, you're going to go over. There is a mass limit for a neutron star. It can only be about mm, three times the mass of the sun. It's a very uh, rough limit. It's not as defi- well defined as the 1.4 times for a uh, white dwarf. But there is a limit where as these two come, come together and coalesce, there's a limit where there can actually be an explosion. It doesn't just form directly a black hole. It might in the end. But doesn't form that directly, it actually has an explosion that throws material out. Some of the material gets thrown out in the process of that explosion. So think of it as a very intense supernova explosion. Now the other possibility is what we call a hypernova. So this is the hypernova. Hypernova is what we talked about before with this regular type 2 supernova explosion, massive star. Except one of the things that we find in some extreme cases, where the stars are massive enough, as the star collapses, okay, it collapsed down, gets ready to explode. It tries to explode back outwards, but there's too much material around it. It doesn't have enough. I mean, even though it's a massive explosion, beyond anything, you know, beyond igniting every nuclear weapon we have at one time in one spot, you know, beyond, well beyond that, but it doesn't have enough energy. So the this, this supernova starts to explode. And it just doesn't have enough energy to push off those outer layers. Well, it stalls. You've got all that material there with no energy source. It's going to start to collapse. You form a black hole at the center. That black hole starts sweeping in material. And again, remember as I showed you with the neutron star, it doesn't just poof, poof it all in like that and be gone. right? If it did that, we'd never see anything. But the material spirals in very slowly. It spirals in. So it spirals in. It forms a disk of material around here, releasing energy and that restarts the supernova explosion. So it starts the explosion again and then pushes off those outer layers and then, then it would be an explosion. So that's what we call a hyper, hypernova, sort of even beyond a supernova explosion. So two different models have been proposed for this. So then it's a matter of looking for evidence and what astronomers are doing. you know, Look at evidence, what do we see that gives us a better idea, is one of these better than the other to account for these gamma-ray bursts that we see. We certainly see the gamma-ray bursts. We know that. Now, that's our, piece of, that's our fact that we see. What causes them is the important thing. So what do we see? what model will work to be able to explain them? So this one, this is one example of a burst that you see over here in April and then about a month later. So you can see the very strong burst there. Here it is. It's what, x-rays? Very bright burst in x-rays. Here in visible light afterwards, you see sort of a remnant left behind. It looks like a very, a very bright supernova. So it looks like a supernova, but not just a, not just a typical supernova that we talked about last time, but an extremely bright supernova, which gives us you know, maybe here's one piece of evidence that leads towards the hypernova model. Is it necessarily correct? No no way to say for sure based on, you know, one piece of evidence or even two or three. It takes a lot more than that in science to, you know, lock down one theory or the other and it'll probably take a long time before they actually get through one, decide on one or the other which one seems to fit everything overall the best. But it certainly leads some extent to that as we see a lot of x-rays, big gamma-ray burst, and left behind some kind of remnant and some kind of, you know, cloud around it expanding out into space. So It gives evidence for the hypernova model but it doesn't really prove anything yet. If we could see a lot more of them, get a lot better statistics, we'd be able to tell a lot better. Alright, now the black holes. The limit is about three solar masses but it's very the exact number isn't known. There's not an exact one I can say that it's, you know, 3.26 solar masses or you know 2.85. It's right around three solar masses. Now if you recall, we talked about white dwarfs. White dwarfs collapsed until something, everything will collapse until something stops it. So the white dwarf collapses until the electrons. You've got all the atoms, you're squishing them together, eventually those electrons start to repel each other. They don't want to get any closer together. They're all negatively charged, so it stops. And it stops that thing about the mass of the sun at the size of the earth. A neutron star is more massive, can crush through those electrons, can crush them together, squeeze them all into the nucleus and crush something down to about 10 kilometers across. So if you're over that 1.4 solar mass limit, boom, it gets crushed down even more. If you're more than about three solar masses, Those neutrons can't even hold themselves up. So right now you're a neutron, you're at a nucleus. You got everything pushing, all the neutrons are pushing against each other. You've gotten rid of all the space that exists within all of the atoms and between the atoms. There's nothing known that can stop its collapse. So if you've got something that's seven solar masses trying to collapse there, it's going to crush the electrons together and then it's going to crush them into the nucleus and it's going to crush those nuclear particles together. And there's nothing that we know of that can stop it. Remember that the gravitational force got dense, got higher and higher as you condense that object down. So when you get very close to this object, this black hole, the gravitational force is so intense that light can't get out. So even light cannot escape from it. How does that work? Well, you think of it as, you know, if you can launch, you launch a rocket or you throw a ball up in space, throw a ball up and if I can throw it really hard, I can launch a ball up into space. If I can throw it fast enough to get it to escape the Earth's gravity. I can throw it with a high enough speed, I can get it, to get it to go. Now I don't know of anybody in existence who can throw that fast, but if you could launch the ball with that speed, as you long know, as we launch rockets, you can get them through the Earth's gravity. If not, what are they going to do? They're going to go up and they're going to turn around and come right back down. They're going to come right back down to the Earth. Well, what happens with a black hole is that gravity is so intense that the escape velocity is greater, you know, that's the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second, as you condense that object down, the escape velocity gets higher and higher. On Earth, it might be about 11 kilometers per second, I think. I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. 10 or 11 kilometers per second that you have to go. If you could condense the Earth down smaller and smaller as you make the radius smaller, you're intensifying the gravity and the escape velocity goes up. Eventually, you get enough material condensed into small enough space, you might have your escape velocity be 400,000 kilometers per second. Light can't escape from it. It's not going fast enough. It's going to go up, and it's going to turn around and come right back down, just like anything else. It's going to be bent right back into the black hole. So that's what gives it its name. It's black hole, because once you're inside it, once you're captured, it can't emit any kind of energy. Nothing can get away from it. That doesn't mean that if you could get inside a black hole, it would be dark. Now, looking at a black hole, nothing gets out of it, but it doesn't mean if you could technically get inside and survive inside a black hole, it could be bright. All these light photons that have been captured are still there. They just can't get away from it. So that's what we mean by a black hole. It's just an object that's become so dense that its, it, it's escape speed to get, all, get away from it is greater than the speed of light. As far as we know, as Einstein says, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. <coughs> That's the speed limit. Nothing will go faster than that, so nothing can escape from a black hole. So we're never able to see anything about it. It sort of collects all, it can collect material, but nothing else gets out of it. The radius gives us an idea of a size. A black hole is condensed down to a point, essentially. All that material gets squished down. You know, it was the size of the Earth, white dwarf, 10 kilometers or so across, the size of a city for a neutron star. Now it's down to a single point. You know, tip of a pin. Put all that material down in there. That's a pretty incredibly dense area. But it has a size, so it's this little tiny point there. You know, there's your black hole, greatly magnified. But we talk about the size of a black hole is that there's a region around it where the escape speed, or escape velocity, let's say, is greater than the speed of light. So if you're here, if you're in here, the escape velocity is even larger. The closer you get to the black hole, it gets larger and larger. But as you go further and further out, it gets less and less, and at some point it becomes equal to the speed of light. Meaning anything inside here, if you're right here and you try to shine a light beam out, it can't get away. It's going to be turned around to the black hole. If you're out here and you shine a light beam away, guess what, it can still escape. If you're just outside the edge of that event horizon, uh, sorry, Schwarzschild radius this time. I'll call it event horizon in a minute. But that's what we call the Schwarzschild uh, C-H-W, radius. It's not a physical radius, there's nothing that you can go to and see, you know, it's not like the surface of the earth. You can't go land on it, the black hole itself, all the materials down there in this little tiny point. The Schwarzschild radius is just that, where you, any place you can know about. Now, any object has a Schwarzschild radius, if you can condense anything down small enough, then the escape velocity would be greater than the speed of light. You condense the Earth. Take the Earth and condense it down to a centimeter. Hmm? Take all the material on the Earth, us and everything included, and condense it down to there. Hope you don't hate your neighbor, right? You've all gotten squished. You're really squished together. It's about a centimeter. The Earth would be a black hole. So it doesn't have to have a certain amount of mass. It's just condensing enough material into a small enough region. The Sun, you could condense it down to about three kilometers. Take all the material in the Sun, condense it down to three kilometers, which would be a little less than two miles across, boom. It would, be, it would be a black hole. Now what we mean once you formed a black hole, so any object has a Schwarzschild radius what it could be, but that Schwarzschild radius also becomes called the event horizon for a black hole. Because beyond that distance we can't know anything. We can't know anything about what's going on in here or here, or here, you know, if you had a black hole and a star happened to go get caught up in it and go supernova inside the event horizon, we're never going to know about it. That information cannot get out to us. It'd have to go faster than light to get away. So we can't know any events that go on within within the event horizon. That's how it gets its name. So Schwarzschild radius and event horizon, when we're talking about a black hole, are really the same, really the same thing. But nothing escapes. Nothing can escape. So no matter how fast you're going, again, unless you find some way to travel faster than light, then you can escape from a black hole. But under current theory, there's no way to do that. There's no way to get out of that black hole. All right. Now, before we get more into black holes, I'm going go to rel- go through relativity a little bit. We'll start on that today and then finish it up on Friday. But Einstein gave us two theories of relativity. His first one, special relativity, was about hundred years ago now. General relativity was a little bit later. That's what we'll look about after. But special relativity said three things. Gave us, gave us a couple different uh, postulates, assumptions that he made. And if you make these assumptions, there's no proof of these. So Einstein took these as given. So like if you do a geometrical proof, you take certain things as given. And that's what Einstein did here. So there's no proof that the speed of light is the maximum possible speed. But if we take that as an as assume that is the case, it gives us a lot of interesting things. It gives a lot of interesting things on a lot of different things that we see that will occur. So what he said is that the speed of light is the maximum possible speed. And it's always measured the same, no matter who's observing it. Now that's not the case. In your everyday experience, here's the guy driving down the highway, shooting a bullet out of the out of the side of the car. Now, if the car is traveling at 100 kilometers per hour, and the bullet is shot out of the barrel of the gun at 1,000 kilometers per hour, hopefully you're doing this on a you know a secure area and not just down down the highway or something. You'll be in trouble. But if you do those and you look at you know if you're measuring the speed. And this observer measures this to move at 1100 kilometers per second because it's the speed of the bullet plus the speed of the car. They get added together. And that's typically how how things work here on Earth. At low speeds, this works. When you get up to high speeds, it doesn't work that way. If you had a spacecraft traveling at a tenth the speed of light, and you shine off a light beam, at the speed of light, which it always travels, then what you'd expect to observe is you'd expect that this observer would see here, watching it, would see, well, it's the speed of light plus a tenth, so it would be 1.1 times the speed of light. But you don't. And all the measurements we make so far have shown this to be the case, that this observer still measures that light traveling at the same speed. That there is a maximum velocity that you can travel in the universe. You can't travel any faster than light, and you can't see anything travel faster than light. So everything is traveling. When you look at this light beam, if still everybody who observes it, whether they're traveling standing still relative to it, if they were moving in this direction at a high velocity relative to the speed of light, or moving away, they're all going to measure that light traveling at exactly the same speed. It's a contradiction to what we normally are used to. You're used to being able to add speeds together. That the bullet is traveling so fast and the car is traveling so fast. And this observer driving in the car sees the bullet moving away at a thousand kilometers per hour. The observer here looking relative to the ground sees it moving at 1,100 kilometers per hour. That's how things normally work on the surface of the Earth. When you're traveling at low speeds. But as you travel faster and faster, we find that this is not the correct way to add velocities together. That really when you get close to the speed of light, and get to the speed of light, there's a different method that has to be used. So that's one thing. And again, I want to make sure it's a postulate. It's, there's, no, there's no proof of this, other than we've done experimental evidence to try to do tests, and everything so far has confirmed special relativity that it's correct, that that does work correctly. That is how, that is how light speed works. But there's no actual, but Einstein did it just based on a, you know assumption. Let's take this as an assumption. The other things that we have are that there's no, there's no absolute state of rest. So there is no fixed state. Everything is in motion relative to each other. So you can't really say whether one thing's moving or another thing's moving. There's no absolute state at rest. So there's nobody that's st- standing completely still. Everything's moving relative to each other. So no absolute state of rest, no place that you can go measure, OK, here is where everything is at rest, at this location in the universe. And we can see everything else moving relative to it. There is no such place. And the other thing is that space and time are not independent of each other; that space and time are intertwined in what we call space-time. So instead of looking at you know dimensions, we tend to talk about three dimensions, right? You know, left and right and up and down and forward and back. But really, there's also a time. So there's actually a four-dimensional there. There's actually a time time. Um, Time dimension that comes in there as well. So, and they're not independent of each other. You don't have space here and time but they're actually mixed together. It's actually a space-time. And when you get to certain intense areas at very high speeds and at very high gravities, space and time get confused. So they'll actually get confused to the point that you know, space and time can be um, twisted around when you get close to a black hole. We talk about it here, you're used to being able to travel through time, right? We can travel through time all all we want, right? At one second per second in the forward direction, but we can travel through time, right? It's not the same time now as it was 10 minutes ago or an hour ago or two hours ago. So we are traveling through time, but we're confined to going in one direction. When you get close to a black hole, all of a sudden you now can travel through time. If you get inside the event horizon and you're close there, you're constrained to move in one direction. You can only move closer to the black hole. You can't get away from it. But you can travel all different directions in time. Your time now is freed. Everything's gotten twisted around. So now you can actually move through time. Are you going to get out there and tell anybody else? Well, you've got to find a way to get out of the black hole first. But, you know, there's a time machine. So we can, you can travel through time. We're just confined and under our everyday experience to travel forward through time at one second per second in one direction. We can't go backwards, can't go sideways, or anything else. Um, Let me see, let me go back for a second because this leads to a couple interesting things. When you travel at close speeds, when you travel at speeds close to the speed of light, it actually gives you some interesting things that will happen. And let's see, what do we do? How about, so when you travel close to these, you get things like, what we'll call time dilation. Times actually will change. Measured times will change. So two observers seeing things, when things are going close to the speed of light, don't measure times exactly the same. And that's the one you get if you're traveling at a high, high speed of light, high, very close to the speed of light, that you're Clock slows down. So your so a clock slows down at high speeds. Meaning, if we could travel, if we could travel at a, get a, get a spacecraft, let's get hacked to get us a spacecraft that'll travel at half the speed of light and make a trip to the next star. Right? Well, if we can take a, a long semester. Uh, Travel at half the speed of light, it'll take us, you know, two years or eight years to get there, eight years to get back. But our clocks would be slower. So it might take us so long, but relative to an observer here on Earth, we might not have been gone for sixteen years, but you might have been gone for 30 years. Their clocks would be running at one time. Your clock traveling at that high speed changes its time. It runs a lot slower. And the closer you get to the speed of light, the more extreme this gets. If you travel at 90 or 99% of the speed of light, you know, one year can mean thousands of years. So you could go on a trip and come back and the earth would be completely different. You know, anybody you knew would be gone. We also get let's see length When we measure things if you're measuring in, that dir- in the direction of motion, so if we measure, this is one meter long. Yep, I'm sure it's a one meter, one not a yard one. But one meter by definition, if it's traveling at a very high speed along this, and somebody measures it, and again, not a high speed that I can move it at, but as we're going close to the speed of light, it'll look smaller. So it'd be traveling here, and if you're traveling at half the speed of light, instead of you know 100 centimeters, it might only look like 70 or 80 centimeters. The closer you get to the speed of light, the smaller it would appear to be traveling in that direction. So these are some of the effects that come out of this. Let me go ahead and stop. I'll finish up. I want to go through one more of these, but I don't really have time to start. i want to make sure I get you your exam. So I'm going to stop there and I'll finish up special relativity and then get on to general relativity next time. So.